You're listening to the Manchester Vineyard Podcast. We'd love for you to join us. To discover more about who we are, where we meet, and how you can connect with us, head to manchestervineyard.org or follow the link in the podcast description. I'm a new dad. Uh, My little girl Hannah is six months old, and I've been thinking a lot about how I want to raise her. And it's actually got me reflecting a lot on God, because we're told in the scriptures, not least by Jesus, that God is our Father. And I guess the really important question then is, well, what type of father is he? I love a a writer called Tozer who once said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What we think, what, what we really think, not just what we'd say if, you know, we were asked, what we deep down think about another person will completely shape how we relate to them, regardless of whether what we think is actually accurate or not. If we think that God is a non-existent father, just some Christian made-up thing, then of course, of course, we're going to ignore him. If he's angry, we'll avoid him. If he's mean, then we won't like him. If he's a father who just kind of amiably gives a seal of approval to whatever it is we want to do, then we'll treat him like a doormat. If he's a distant father, then we're not going to bother trying to connect But in 1 John 4, we're told that God is love, that he's a loving father, which I like, but I've always had a bit of trouble trying to square that with the discipline side that we also find in the scriptures. How do those two pieces fit together? And I wonder what goes through your mind when you hear that word, discipline, because 100% in this room, everyone will have gone through some kind of discipline from a parent or a carer, but there's probably going to be a lot of variety in terms of how that actually looked. Not all good. I imagine, and hopefully lots of it was. So what about our dad in heaven? How does his discipline shape our lives? That's what I've been thinking about. And my perception is that for many, and this is definitely kind of my background, my journey, where I've come from, uh, there's this uncomfortable relationship with the idea of discipline, perhaps especially from God. And the passage that talks most about this, especially in the New Testament, is in Hebrews chapter 12. So I'm going to read that. Um, I realized this morning that I'm getting old and I need a new Bible with lettering that's a bit bigger than this. But hey, we'll give it our, give it our best shot. So this is Hebrews chapter 12. If you've got it in, on your phone or in a Bible or whatever, then feel free to turn there. But I'll be reading. So Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3 to 13. Consider him, this is Jesus, who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, my son and daughter, I think it's fair to say, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. Don't lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children aren't disciplined by their father? If you're not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you're not legitimate. Not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we've all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but but God disciplines us for our good in order that we might share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. 
And I think in that passage, we can kind of see that whoever, uh, we don't know who wrote Hebrews, but whoever he's writing to, they're grappling with discipline a bit as well. Listen to this from verse 3. Consider him, talking about Jesus, who endured such opposition from sinners so that you won't grow weary or lose heart. And you only encourage someone not to grow weary and lose heart if you think there might actually be a chance that they're going to do that. Otherwise, it really is wasted words. So he's addressing an audience who, on this journey of knowing God and walking with him and submitting to him, are in danger of, of losing steam. Just two verses later, again, he says, my son, don't make light of the Lord's discipline. Don't lose heart when he rebukes you. Again, when, when God's on your case about something, don't lose heart. Don't give up and disengage. Why might someone do that? I think there's probably loads of reasons, but I've just picked out a couple that might resonate. Uh, one is that being disciplined by anyone is normally hard work and not that enjoyable. Uh, verse 11 actually says that. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. And I just prefer comfort to pain. And so it's sometimes just easier to avoid. Or maybe this one. Maybe we're not that comfortable with the idea of submitting to someone else's authority. Perhaps some of the authority figures in our lives haven't done a great job. And so it really doesn't seem like a great idea to allow a new figure to administer discipline in our lives, given what's happened in the past. Maybe, and this would be my story, whether we admit it or not, we're actually kind of afraid of God. View him a bit more of a, like a perfectionistic taskmaster than a good dad. And that's difficult, isn't it? Like, will we ever be good enough? Is there any point in trying? There could be any number of reasons why we might struggle to keep on keeping on as God might challenge us or want to shape things in our lives. And of course, that's not the only way we might respond to discipline. In verse 5, the writer also talks about making light of God's discipline. And that's the other side of the coin, right? Like just being flippant. And someone who generally just finds a way to weave around it isn't going to find it particularly tiring or wearisome because um, they're not seriously engaging with it anyway. I need to get my spending under control, but there's a lot worse out there. And God, God would want me to be happy, right? I keep losing my temper with that employee that really annoys me. Yeah, but no one's perfect. There's grace. There are probably any number of reasons why we might either get ground down on this journey of engagement with discipline or just choose to dodge it. But the writer is so keen that his readers not do that. He's saying engage. Where it lands in verse 12, he's saying, therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and your weak knees. Make level paths for your feet. Those kind of pictures, feeble arms and weak knees, are really common ancient Jewish images for, for, for being discouraged. And he's saying, encourage yourself. Be strong. Go straight. Don't give up. But he's a smart cookie. And he recognizes that just being really encouraging isn't normally enough to make someone do a U-turn over anything. No one, over time, keeps up something that ultimately, deep down, they don't like to do and they don't see any value in. We've all had those moments, right, where you just think, why am I doing this? Every Christmas, I eat one Brussels sprout just to see if my taste buds have changed and because it's good for me. And every Christmas, I'm like, what was I thinking? And it's that really awkward, like, into the napkin and hope mum doesn't see. This writer understands that encouragement is great, but what he really needs to do is to convince his readers of the reality of the goodness of God and the goodness of his discipline. Because if we come to that understanding about 
anything really, whether it's exercise or, or this, that it really is the best thing for us. Going to bring the best out in us, make us the happiest and the healthiest long term that we might just engage with. So that's really what I spend the next minutes in really, just looking at the three things I think we can pull out of this text that just nail the goodness of engaging with God's discipline, regardless of how we've thought about it up to now in our lives. And the first thing is that God's discipline is it's, it's for our protection. Verse 4 says, in your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, which is pretty intense. Um, discipline apparently has a lot to do with sin, and sin's serious. The reality is all parents have an awareness that there are things that just aren't safe for children, right? Like water that's too deep, fire, hot things, don't wrap stuff around your neck, don't trust, don't trust strangers. It's a long list. And then there's stuff that might not be immediately harmful, but if you keep doing it, it's going to come and get you in the end, right? So eating sweets at the rate that most children want to eat sweets, or in my case, Ferrero Rocher, because I like the finer things. Uh, or making a habit of treating your friends badly, or skipping school, or schoolwork. But guess what? Hot things sometimes look really interesting. Sweets beat broccoli any day, and pretty much anything beats homework. I used to have this out with my mum all the time over pretty much anything you'd want to point at. One that came up all the time was she's Scottish. She was like, Matthew, I think you're behaving like this because you're tired, you're overtired, it's time for bed. Well into my 20s. No, I'm just kidding. Not into my 20s. But I don't know if you can remember how incensed you can get as a child. I was like, I'm not overtired. I think I'd know. I'm me. If I'm overtired, how come I've got so much energy? And I just remember being so frustrated. And I used to promise myself on a regular basis, I will never, ever, ever treat my kids the way my mum and dad treat me. Well, I've now got a six-month-old. And guess what? Overtiredness is definitely a thing. Man, she's got big, big feelings anyway, but when she's tired, it's just hard. To be honest, last night was one of them, so just bear with me. Anyway, the reality is good parents are motivated by what's best for their kids and especially what is going to protect them. Even if the kids don't like it, want it, or understand it, that's just the job. And as the one who literally designed humanity, God has an insight into what's helpful and harmful for us that no other parent can boast. We live in a world where, at the moment, certainly in the West, one of the big mantras is, whatever makes you happy, you do you. And one of the problems with that is there's just such a host of competing ideas about what actually makes people happy. And sadly, sometimes what uh, looks like it's going to give us short-term happiness can often walk hand in hand with long-term harm. Honesty works for us uh, and for our well-being in the long term, but not always that attractive. Sometimes just playing a bit fast and loose with the truth can be convenient in the moment. Trying to be a peacemaker is really good for us, but it's hard work. And sometimes just telling people what you think of them and walking away can be easier. Listen to this in verse 6. The Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Now, oh, please come off it. Page just defying me. Chastens everyone he accepts as his son. So the um, part of the father's discipline is chastening. So I looked up the word chastening, and it says um, in the Oxford Dictionary to have a restraining or a moderating effect on. And most of us just don't love that. <laughs> I don't. Generally, we prefer not to be restrained or moderated. Just let me do what I want to do. 
But just because we don't enjoy being challenged doesn't mean it's not the best thing for us. And I'm, as I'm finding out on a daily basis, having a restraining effect on my little girl is absolutely what's best for her. I, it's like actually hard to imagine a child who wasn't restrained by their carer. What would that even look like? If they had no one telling them, don't touch the hot thing. Don't cross the road without mummy or daddy. Don't hit kids. Like, you're just not going to have any friends. <laughs> the idea is, is terrifying. Imagine a child who didn't have that. And oftentimes God's challenging us or inviting restraint because he knows sin will always harm us and the people around us in the end. It's as though he's saying, look, there's a reason I'm challenging you not to have a loose relationship with us. The truth, there's a reason that I'm after that habit of gossiping. There's a reason I want you to face that mess you left in that relationship and go back to it. There's a reason I'm on, on at you about your diet, which is currently true of me. Ferrero Rocher, man. Um, it's hard, but I'm actually doing really well. Um, he's that secure, patient parent who's willing to take things on in our lives and risk being disliked for it because he knows it's going to spare us the pain that our unchecked appetites and selfishness and impulses are going to have us on a collision course with. I heard this quote that stuck with me. Everyone must choose between one of two pains. The pain of discipline or the pain of regret. A lot of the Father's discipline is just trying to save us pain. He's just trying to protect us. And the question, I guess, is can we see that and decide to embrace it? The second one, and this is, if you take nothing else away, this would be the one. The second one is discipline is his love. The next thing that comes up in the passage in verse 6, six, 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 six um, is this. My son or daughter, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when you are reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves. Love is the only fully reliable and fully safe sorry, context for discipline. My wife, Rhiannon, and I did some adoption training a few years back uh, when we were exploring starting a family through adoption, which sadly we've had to press pause on for now. But it was really good and really fascinating. It took four days, and the trainers did such a good job of trying to equip us to be ready to receive kids who've been through a lot. And the reality is if you adopt, you're going to have some kids who probably at some point are going to um, exhibit challenging behavior. And some of you parents thinking, all kids are like that. Yeah, but maybe even more. And, and they hammered home to us that our job as parents was to convince them again and again and again and again that we love them, uh, that they could trust us, that we weren't going anywhere, and that we loved them. What was really fascinating, though, was far from recommending that adopters um, avoid kind of discipline and boundaries in case, you know, we, we hurt or offend these kids who've been through so much. They were like, no, you need to go bigger. They need more discipline. They need more boundaries. It's good for them. But... It's got to be rooted in love. It's all about how you do it and how you can be kind as you do it. And I realized as I was absorbing the training, as they were describing how we should treat these kids, they were pretty much describing exactly how the father treats us. There are parallels. We, like many children who end up in care, when we come towards God, the Christian faith, and we're trying to work out who he is, we may enter with a sense of trepidation based on previous experiences. We don't know if we can really fully trust him because we just don't know him. And so God's first foot forward is pure, extravagant love. Today's passage, after all, isn't the beginning of the New Testament. That's the Gospels. Jesus' uh, life and his ministry and his death and resurrection that paint the picture of a God who, in the words of John 3.16, so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son 
that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And he did that before we made up our minds about him, before we say yay or nay to him, before we submit to any discipline, before we even decide if we believe in him. He did that. How much does God love us literally as much as he loves himself? And it's only after that, it's only after we are able to begin receiving that, that he begins to gently and kindly pull us up on things. Not before, because it never works that way around. For any parent, adoptive or otherwise, there's always two dynamics at play in discipline. So the first, if I come over here, not far, because I've got to be able to see my notes. The first is that a parent who's, who's going on a discipline journey with their child, they want change, right? They want their kid to actually change, not just get in trouble. And so my parents, for instance, used to like discipline me and my sisters quite differently because they're different people. And they're not just after like this sense of, well, it, at least it was fair. They're like, no, but for Matty, who normally storms off saying sorry, but he clearly didn't mean it, how can we get him to a point where he actually did mean it? But then there's the other piece of discipline, the other dynamic, which is about punishment. It's about the fact that when a child or anyone does something wrong, harms the wider family, breaks the rules, there's got to be some kind of consequence if we're going to keep things fair. If as a teenager I'd borrowed mum and dad's car, uh, uninsured and wrapped it around the neighbor's tree, I would have been poorly received if I'd bounded into the kitchen and I'd been like, mum, dad, I wrote the car off, but I've changed. I've learned my lesson. That was the old me. I'm a new man. So actually, I think we can leave it there. That's only half the story. Yes, if I've actually changed, great news, I'm sure they'll be glad. But also, you're grounded. Because sometimes there has to be a penalty that fits the crime, doesn't it? The restoration side over here, we might typically talk of in terms of love. And the other side, the punishment side, we might talk of in terms of justice. And they're both present in God. And that's part of the tension that we face. Now, of course, it's only really justice if it's a really good parent. Not every parent does this part well, it has to be said. Mine were actually pretty good, so I'm, I'm grateful. But it can become, at its worst, less about a proportionate uh, response to something that's been done wrong and more about the annoyance and the frustration of the parent. This, this punishment piece can become like that. I want you to imagine a kid. I read a, a story on BBC about this, and it was quite funny. I can't remember any of the details, but roughly it goes like this. You know, the kid um, has been on one of the parents' phones. Candy Crush in-game spend is right up here. We're talking hundreds and hundreds of pounds. Um, and the parent finds out what they said. I've got no idea, but now enter my creative mind. Parent finds out and is like, you what? 300 pounds on Candy Crush. Maybe the kid didn't even know what they were doing. It's like, you're grounded. A month. And the kids, that's not, I, a month, that's, that's not fair. That's not, he's going to make it a month, you might as well make it two. Two. You want to, all right, you got it, two, double. Hope you're happy. You can't do that. that why, why do you hate me so much? That's, that's ridiculous. That's just ridiculous. You're so, watch it. I'm ready with four. I'm ready with four. Do you want to go there? And I know that's like slightly comical. Like for whatever child actually had that happen to them, it probably wasn't that funny. But you can kind of see it, right, that in that example I was giving, the punitive uh, side of discipline is run amok. It's about the parent's annoyance. It's not actually about doing the fair thing to the child. And I wonder if for many people, 
Uh, and not just people out there who are like trying to work out what they think about Jesus or the Father or Christianity, but even people here in this room who maybe would say, no, I am following Jesus. There's this sense um, that perhaps the Father is a little bit like that parent. Perhaps he's just a bit too harsh. Maybe there's even this sense that he enjoys it a bit. No, he, he sets these rules and they're hard and then he's like, well, you've gone and done it. And I just want to tell you that nothing could be further from the truth. The Bible tells us that ultimately the wages or punishment for sin is death. But this is Jesus in John. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Jesus speaks straight to the ultimate punishment that should be meted out for sin. And he says, if you come to me and you believe in me, receive me, that punishment for sin won't touch you. That punishment side doesn't exist for you anymore. On the cross, as he died for us, that moment was done. And that's the gospel, that the justice of God required that sin couldn't just go unpunished. He couldn't just sweep it under the carpet. So in his love, he took it for us instead. And I want to ask you, if Jesus, who had lived perfectly, literally perfectly, took all the punishment for sin onto himself as he died on the cross, how much punishment is left for you and me? Fear is a really bad basis for a relationship. The adoption trainers were telling us that. You know that. I know that. John, again, in his first letter in chapter 4 says, there is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. We all know that pre-punishment feeling, right? You've done something wrong. You've dropped a clanger. No one's found out yet, but you know they will. And you're just dreading that moment when the hammer's going to fall. And as we say yes to Jesus, there is no need for fear because there's no need for punishment. Now, I have to be clear and kind of, I won't have time to do it properly, but bring in something else, which is that what God doesn't do is keep us from the consequences that arrive from ignoring his discipline. If with my little Hannah, I spend the years that I will investing in her, please do this, please don't do this, and she ignores it, she may well get hurt. But I didn't want that. That's not my punishment. And likewise, sadly, she's going to encounter people in the world who are completely ignoring God's best for their lives, and they're going to hurt her as well. But again, that's not what I want for her, and that's definitely not what God wants for her. It would be wrong to categorize that as God's punishment in her life. It's, you know, we, there could be a whole different talk for another day on some of this. But my, if we take what Jesus is offering, and we choose to join the family of God, because he won't force us, we don't ever have to worry about punishment. And Christianity really does stand apart in this regard. Every religion, religion that I've ever looked into, you know, a lot of the main ones, uh, operates on a similar kind of basis. It's a bit like a university. You know, you go to uni, uh, you have to apply, you get in, and there's this, like, starting moment, isn't there? And that's the same for most religions. You know, you, there's, there's a, you, you get baptized, you make some declaration of faith, you start, and you're on the way, whatever that way is. And at uni, it's studies. In religion, it's living well, whatever that, ver that religion says about that. But you never know if you're all the way in until you hit exam season at the end, right? You've, you, you're never quite sure. If you're a better student than I was, maybe you were pretty confident, but hey, water under the bridge. And um, with the whole uni analogy, that's just how it works. Most religions at the end, 
you find out you live well, hoping that at the end, judgment is going to go well. And Christianity just isn't like that at all. It stands alone. That bit at the end, that finally examination, judgment, maybe punishment, happened 2,000 years ago for everyone who chooses to make Jesus their Lord and Savior. We're not a uni, we're more of an apprenticeship scheme where a guy called Jesus comes along and he's like, look, do you want to follow me? And if you do, if you say yes, it's not necessarily going to be easy. In fact, it definitely won't be. But I can tell you what happens at the end because it's happened. God's discipline is love. And it's like he's saying to us, look, since I've made you clean, I've set you free, I've poured out my love, I've accepted into your, you into my family, don't you want to actually start living as though that were true? Don't you want to kick that temper that just always gets you in trouble? Because I can help you with that. Don't you want to learn to be content instead of always comparing? Don't, don't you want to, uh, me to teach you who you really are rather than trying to piece it together based on the books you've read and Instagram and YouTube and whatever else? Listen to this in verse 8. If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you're not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Because discipline is such a normal, healthy part of family life and of relationship between a, a parent and a child, if it's not happening, it won't be because the parent isn't trying to do it. It will be because somewhere along the line, the child has walked out on it and said, you know what, that's enough for now. That might not be true in all human families, but it definitely is with God. And the last thing, just in terms of the nature of discipline, first, that it's for our protection. Second, that it's because he loves us. The third is, it's more than that. It's actually for our thriving. It's to live life for the full. What's the ultimate point? This is verse 10. They disciplined us for a little while, talking about human parents as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good, that we might share in his holiness. It might not seem pleasant at the time. That's paraphrased. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness. And peace. His discipline isn't just about keeping us from harm. In a positive sense, it's training for our good and holiness and righteousness and peace. And I want you to imagine it, you know, if after this service you came up to me and said, Oh, Hannah's so gorgeous, da, 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 she is. Um, what, what, what are your hopes for her? And I said, Well, I've got three. I don't want her to end up in jail. I don't want her to end up in an abusive relationship and no drugs. You'd probably be a bit baffled. Like, that's true, by the way. I, I do want all those things for her. But that is low-bar dreaming, isn't it? That is not what I'd call thriving. Jesus, the Son of God, fascinatingly actually made himself subject to his Father in heaven and to his discipline for 33 years when he was on earth. And it wasn't because he was doing anything wrong. It wasn't because he was about to drop a clangor and the Father had to just step in like, whoa, careful says this in John 15, 1 and 2. This is Jesus speaking. I'm the true vine and the Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will bear even more fruit. Jesus submitted to the Father, cutting this back, avoiding that, doing a little bit more of this, even though he was light years ahead of someone like me. And he wanted the Father to shape him because he knew that there was so much the other side of that shaping, so much more blessing for others, so much more joy for him, so much more relationship with his father. And we're actually designed for a lifestyle like that, for closeness with the father, goodness, self, selfless service, deep loving relationship, as this passage puts it, righteousness and peace. The more like Jesus we become and the more we allow him to deal with the sin on the one hand, but also as we actively pursue him, 
we learn to live listening to the Holy Spirit and become more free and we can become more fruitful. And we just get to enjoy the lives that we were designed for. The discipline of God is pure good. Pure good. And I think it must like sadden the Father's heart so much that so many of us avoid it or find it so uncomfortable. And I just want to land by highlighting four ways that we might look for this in our lives. Because the problem, of course, with the discipline of God is that like, I can't see him. My parents were great at being unavoidable when they wanted to discipline me. And I couldn't do a lot about it because they knew where I lived. Um, but with God, it is different, isn't it? If we want to avoid it, we can. And sometimes maybe we're not trying to avoid it, but we just, what am I looking for? So I want to highlight a few things, really practically. One, hardship. This is actually the only thing that's mentioned in the passage. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. God allows difficulty in our lives, knowing it can be used to mature and shape us. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean it's from him. But we are told by Paul in Romans, we know that in all things, God works together for the good of those who love him. And that's obviously even the hard things. The, the phrasing is really interesting. Endure hardship as discipline as if it were discipline because if you have the right attitude God can grow you through it and I remember at the beginning of lockdown I'm sure we all had like very different experiences but I got that letter the dreaded letter from the NHS saying you can't go outside for at least two months because I was in the high risk category and blah, blah 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 and I'm an extrovert and I love the outdoors and I hated it and then a couple of weeks later there was a like a cancer scare and I was going to have to have an operation and fortunately after it all settled down the tumor was benign and it was fine but as you can imagine that couple of months were not a lot of fun. And um, I just went into avoidance mode. I was working too hard. I was eating way too much fast food. Rhiannon found it really hard to say no because look at those eyes. Look at what I'm going through, man. Um, and I was just milking it. Disney Plus subscription straight away. And I, I just realized I'm in real danger of going through one of the most difficult seasons of my life and having absolutely nothing to show for it on the other side. I'm just going to be come out of this more addicted and more of a mess than I went in. And I'm going to completely miss whatever God might want to do through it. Do I think God sent COVID? No. Do I think he sent that tumor? No. But I'm really gratefully managed to get my attention. Just. And I'm proud to say I never ate another chocolate. No, I'm joking. That's not true. But <laughs> I'm on a journey. But it started with that moment of recognition. In this hard time, there could be. A moment for God. The second thing, quickly, is the Bible. I mean, it's a big deal, guys. I don't need to say too much about it. But I guess my question would be, how do you view it? Because there's some people in this room, and you don't actually know. You haven't made your mind up, and that's fair enough. But for many of us, we, we have. And we do think it should have a level of authority in our lives. And then the next question, therefore, becomes, are we letting it actually do that? Are we letting it speak into our lives and encourage us, but also bring us up on things. There can be this temptation, perhaps, just to, to take the bits that we like, avoid the tricky bits. Um, and I just want to say we're actually avoiding goodness when we do that. You know, if my dad gave me 10 pieces, my dad's great, by the way. If he gave me 10 pieces of advice and I took three, four, I was like, consider it advisory, and three, I completely ignored. What I'm really saying to him is, Dad, I'll decide. Don't you worry, mate. I've got this. And doing that with God just isn't a great idea for our lives and doing that with the Bible. Now, of course, I have to say it's hard to interpret. It's 66 different books. It's written across a huge time span. It's really old. 
They're different genres. It's from a different culture. So I'm not saying it's always really easy to, to apply that straight into our lives. But surely the response should be to wrestle with it then, not just dismiss it. If there was ever an endorsement for it, I think it's how incredibly attentive Jesus was to the scripture. He would have memorized the entirety of the Old Testament. Um, and he considered it as authoritative in his own life. So if, if you're here and you're not sure what you think about Jesus, I'm really glad you are here. But for those of us who have got a pretty good idea and we are trying to follow him, how can we view the Bible differently to the way he did? So some food for thought. How much of your attention goes to it? When did it last speak to you? Are the bits that you're trying to avoid or have been and you haven't been back to for a while? The third one is community. Uh, last week, if you weren't here, Shaham did a great message. Did get, Gave a great message. And she spoke about community and she spoke about having a community that is kind of shaped on the way Jesus did it. That we should have these bigger environments. Jesus had 72 kind of in his wider sphere. You might say that's a bit like this. Although I think there's more of us than that. Then there's the small group space. He had 12 people. We've got... Um, Small groups in this, in this church, if you're not part of one, we would so encourage you to get involved. And then he had his smallest group of three people who were his really, really good friends. And why? Because we all need good relationships, don't we? We need love. We need people to laugh with. We need people to cry with. We need that intimacy. But also, those people in those spaces can be the, some of the best vehicles God can use to bring us up on stuff. Because the people who we know love us will listen to. Maybe it's through a sermon. Maybe it's something that comes up in small group that you think, I don't like it, but I'm probably going to have to wrestle with it. Maybe it's in your friendships. Do you have any friends where you've mutually invited input? Do you have any friendships where if they pull you up on something, they're not just going to get their head bitten off or be given the silent treatment? And again, of course, we've got to be careful. You know, we can't uncritically take other people's opinions, but they might be right. So it's definitely worth investing in that type of relationship. And the final thing is just learning to hear his voice. I think one is, is perhaps conscience. I definitely found since university when I started to take God seriously. Some of the stuff I used to do, I don't know when it happened. I just feel differently about it. Some of the stuff I used to say, it's just changed. And the other thing is just learning to hear his voice for ourselves. It's often not audible. I used to think, nah, it's not really for me. I'm sure someone does, but not me. And actually, so often I've found that just things will drop into my mind at the right moment and it will bless me. And sometimes challenge me. Are you on that journey? If you're not, it's a great one. But also, if something does come up, if you do feel a challenge, if you do have that thought drop into your head, what are you going to do about it? Have you resolved to try and actually go with it? I think that the Father longs for us to live more free, better mental health, stronger relationships, all of that stuff. And it's not just about us, it's about other people. But he's after partners, not puppets. He's not going to force us. There's some great stuff that he would love to do in our lives. And some of it he's going to do anyway because he's just that good. But some of it is just the other side of us saying yes. Of us going back to something and taking on his discipline. That new habit. Whatever it might be. Guys, would you... Stand if you're able. And what we're going to do now, Pascal's going to join me. Uh, this is what we do every week. If it's new to you, then just uh, hopefully you can enjoy it. But we're just going to invite the Holy Spirit. And we're going to see what he wants to say. So if you'd like to close your eyes, whatever makes you feel most comfortable, I'm just going to pray over us.
Father, thank you so much for what you have revealed about yourself in Jesus. That you're infinitely better than we know. And that your discipline is just another part of that. And I pray that you would come now. Holy Spirit, would you fill this space encouraging and loving, gently challenging, whatever it is you want to do, we just invite you. this is a bit new to you, we do this because we just know God loves to show up. We can so busily just rush on into the week and we just want to hold the space for just a few minutes. Um, had the sense during worship then again in um, Matty's talk that for some some people here there's a real um, weariness that's getting in the way of, of that in um, verse 12 of the passage that Matty shared it says so take a new grip with your tired hands and strengthen your weak knees um, I think there's a there's a, a yeah a rallying that that needs to happen in some in some people, um, and yes, yeah, similarly, <coughs> that for some people there's a real um, trust issue almost. Like I trust mm. my, my my earthly father, I trust my earthly father, but I'm not sure how to trust God or if I yeah if I do trust Him. And one of the worship songs that we sang um, earlier just implored us to trust, trust him again, deep in the night, and pour out your hallelujah. Um, it just, yeah, it require again, requires that rallying, that strengthening. Um, so if, if either of those um, resonate with you, we just really encourage you to be open to what, to maybe to what he wants to do with you this morning, not necessarily a, a discipline thing, but just drawing you back to him, back to that relationship. Yeah, I, as I was preparing this talk, just had such a strong sense that there would be people in this room for whom the discipline piece is almost an aside. The really important thing is just the love of God. That there's people in this room, and I've been one of them, who just struggle with how good he really is as a father. And we'd love to pray into that. We would love to pray into that. Sometimes it's just great to, to bring this out into the community and, and let others gather around us. So if, if that's you, if you're someone who, for whatever reason, like the, the love of the father has been a challenge for you, then we'd really encourage you, if you'd be up for making your way to the sides or down to the front, the band are just going to start playing in a moment just to give people a bit of anonymity um, as they're being prayed for. But yeah, if you struggle with the love of the Father at all, then we'd love to pray into that. And then I think the, the other group 
Pass kind of mentioned it, the weary thing. Just, just people who are like, oh, for whatever reason, I'm dodging something, I'm tired of something, whatever it might be, but I'm, I haven't engaged with this for a while. And this morning, you've just felt like a new nudge on it. And we'd love to pray for you as well. So yeah, if that's you, come out now to the sides or just to the front and we won't leave you long. Someone will come and pray for you. I think there's also um, a real power in, in yeah, quite, quite physically coming forward to submit to what the Lord's doing. And there will be people, you know that God has been on your case about some stuff um, and you just want to say, yeah, I get it. I want you to. I want you to parent me um, through that. So, if, yeah. Again, if that's you, we'd really love to stand with you in that. And if you're in a in a small group in the life of the church, don't leave these guys waiting for prayer for too long. Um, if women women pray for women, men pray for men. Just see what God does. be someone in this room who um, you have been on a journey working out who you think God is and Jesus is, you're not following him, you're not a Christian but some of what's come up this morning you've realised actually the God you've been thinking about isn't actually what God is really like at all and you feel stirred to give your life to Jesus and if that is anyone here, again I'd love it if you would come to the side, respond in some way, or if you don't feel able to do that, maybe the person who you came along with, you could let them know and they could pray for you. Thanks for listening. To find out more, head to manchestervineyard.org or follow the link in the podcast description.